0: Good morning, my PBC family it's, uh, for those of you don 't know me, um, I am Mike Webb. I am the new guy, so I was telling happy uh, that adds a that adds a little layer of pressure because I know if I was in your position, the first thing i 'm thinking is let 's see what he 's got so so anyway um, we 've got a lot of things today, uh, but before that, I also wanted to say. Um, as I've gotten to know a lot of people here, there's a, a tremendous amount of depth and graciousness and warmth uh, in my interactions with everyone. And uh, I really, really appreciate that. If you've ever been through a transition, you know it can be overwhelming. So um, I hope that continues after my first mess up, which actually occurred just last week. Um, um, but we'll get through it. And uh, I, I do. I appreciate it. So. We are, we're covering a lot of ground today um, We put 10 verses of Zechariah up there uh, I really want to focus on the first four uh, But we will go to verse 9 as well uh, It's an amazingly simple message um, I can tell that uh, you're probably not impressed by the title Jesus saves, it's probably something we all know, right? Uh, we, if you're Christian in here, you know that that's a fact And it's a, a pretty basic fact, a pretty fundamental fact to our faith uh, But there's so much more that we can unpack out of that, and that's what I'd like to do uh, with this passage from Zechariah. So the thing that I would like to do uh, before I get there is give you a little bit of context with with uh, Zechariah as he's writing what's what's happening with the nation of Israel. Let's set the story up a little bit. So you may be familiar with the history of Israel. Uh, you know as a nation, uh, they were called, they were chosen by God to be his chosen people. Uh, they were called to walk with him and have him be the... Uh, uh, he would be their God exclusively, only God. Uh, but you know, over the course of time, how they would they would worship God, and then a- after they walked a while, they would slowly slip away. They would they would be drawn away by the idols of their their neighbors. They would become prosperous. They would forget God, uh, and then things would hit rock bottom. They would be oppressed by uh, people from the outside. Uh, their their prosperity would disappear. They would suffer the consequences of moving away from God, and then when it got really bad, they would repent. They would turn back to God, uh, and He would graciously accept them in their repentance. So it was a, kind of like a, a lather, rinse, repeat type of cycle, which I don't know anything about. Uh, I kind of remember those days, but so so they would move away. They 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 would serve God wholeheartedly. They would move away. They would hit rock bottom, and then they would come back to to uh, to, to God. Now. Often, as an early Christian, as a new Christian, I would kind of make fun of them. What in the world are you doing? You've got a pillar of fire. You've got a cloud of smoke. You've seen God split the Dead Sea, Red Sea. Um, how can you possibly do this? But as Happy reminded us last, last week, we're all in that stage, aren't we? We're always vacillating between that carnal chair and the spiritual chair. So we're no different than the Israelites were in a lot of those uh, aspects. Uh, so it's a, it's a good lesson for us to learn as we, as we see how God works. So we know that God's chosen um, his, his story for us is a, is a marvelous story of grace and redemption. And it's been present from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. It'll be present from the beginning of time to the end of time. Uh, it, it stretches from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, there's a book called The Scarlet Thread. If you've never read it, I recommend it. It's the story of Jesus woven throughout the tapestry of the Old and New Testament. Well, that's what we're looking at today in this passage of Zechariah. So, at the time of Zechariah's writings, um, we find the Israelites had been in captivity in babylon now for 70 70 some years um and they are on their way back to the their homeland the 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 nation of israel is moving back and zechariah is writing with the purpose of saying hey look you guys are physically moving back to your homeland now we need to do the same thing spiritually with our god so remember as you go back home to make sure we make God, so we don't have to do this captivity thing again, remember to make sure that God is the focus of our worship. Uh, they had often become, for practical matters, spiritual adulterers. And again, it might be a pattern we make, might poke fun of them at, but we, we do the same things. We, we can be drawn away easily by material things. We can be drawn away by success, pr- uh, prosperity. Uh, we, we really are no different. So diving in. So the first two verses, we, we're introduced to three characters. Um, and, and i got to say this, you guys did a great job with the music. You can tell the Holy Spirit's moving because really I could have strung to, together verses from every one of those songs and I could have done my, my sermon. It would have saved a lot of time. But um, we're introduced to Joshua, the high priest. And at this time, he is, a, he is a real, live, physical person. And as they're returning to Israel, he is the high priest of Israel. So he is representative of not just the nation of Israel, but as individuals, he's representative of, of us as well. So we have Joshua, the high priest. And then we have the angel of the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with Bible reading at all, your scriptures, you know that generally, generally, the angel of the Lord is a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, he's... Not just one of the three characters today, though. He's probably, no probably, he is the main character, the hero of our story today. And I'm going to dive into that in a little bit. Uh, But this is this is Jesus Christ. And if you're not certain, um, I want to go to verse 9 then. This is the only time, second time, two times we'll go to to verse 9. For a little bit of clarification on and to make sure that this is indeed Jesus Christ. So it says, see the stone... I have said in front of Joshua, there are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. I want to break that down just a little bit. I think as you read it, you could take my word for it that it's Jesus, but I think as we unpack it a little bit, you'll, you'll see with certainty that this is certainly an Old Testament reference and a beautiful foretelling of a New Testament truth in the book of Zechariah. So the stone... Uh, that I've set in front of Joshua. The word used for stone is a, is, a, is a large object. And we can tell that it's a large object just naturally because it's set before Joshua and not on Joshua. That would be a bad thing, a large stone set on Joshua. So it's a large stone set before Joshua. Joshua. Um, What we know that the Old Testament readers wouldn't have gotten this necessarily, but we know from the New Testament, from a couple of Scripture references, Matthew and Peter. We see Matthew call Jesus the stone that the builders rejected, and we see in Peter that is the chosen and precious cornerstone, basically the firm foundation of our faith. So as New Testament readers, we can make the correlation between the large stone and Jesus. Okay, on its own, that might not be overwhelming for you. But, then if we look at the, uh, the eyes. Okay, so seven eyes. I asked my granddaughter, would it kind of, how would you feel if a a large stone came down with seven eyes and was put before you? And her answer was probably the same as yours, the same as mine. Kind of creepy. So, it doesn't have to be creepy. The, the Bible is written such that we can learn, uh, from so many things. God's been gracious to give us the words on the page. We read them, we learn, right? but also the symbolism that he's put in there. Uh, the Old Testament readers, again, they would have immediately picked up on this. Um, the metaphors that he uses, they all serve a purpose. So it's so deep, you can you can never peel back all the layers. Uh, even MDiv stu- students uh, spend their life doing that. So seven, a stone with seven eyes. Seven eyes. We know from the Scriptures that seven is the number of perfection. Everybody agree with that? So seven eyes, then, is perfect vision, and, and not like twenty twenty physical vision, but perfect understanding. Or omniscience, and do we know anyone who is omniscient? It's Jesus Christ, right? So Jesus again, another picture of Jesus uh, in the Old Testament here. Okay, so then we read about an engraving on the stone as well. In a single day, He will take away our our sin. That's a perfect picture, isn't it, of Calvary? On a single day, Jesus was inscribed, engraved, pierced in His hands and feet, in His side, and in a single day took away. The sins from the from the land, so you put them all three together, so if you weren 't sure anyway, this is a, a picture of Jesus. Uh, each facet by itself may not be convincing you, but in in the book of Zechariah here, we have a very clear picture uh, that Jesus is indeed being referred to again, the wounds suffered on Calvary on our behalf are the engraved inscriptions on the firm foundation of our of our faith, our chief cornerstone, and what do they say? It doesn't tell us in Zechariah what the inscription says, but we know and it's again the, the firm foundation of our faith the the fact that Jesus says is he says, "I love you this much enough to suffer this to uh, to suffer through these uh, consequences and, and rescue you from your sin so again, in the Old Testament we see this perfect picture uh, of Jesus uh, again another beautiful foretelling uh, of his work. So if Jesus the rock causes offense, the chief cornerstone that was pierced for our transgressions, and it's his sacrifice that took away the weight of the sin and the guilt and the shame and reconciled us perfectly to God in a single day. It's Jesus that rescued us from our sins, and that fact alone makes him worthy of our, of our worship, isn't it? That fact alone. But there's more. So let's go back to verse uh, one and two, verses one and two, and we meet the third character uh, in our passage, and that character is Satan, and the word used there is the accuser. So we have Satan, the accuser, and he's and he's doing what his name implies. He's accusing uh, Joshua, and you know what? He's absolutely right to do so in this case because as we look at verse three and four, how is Joshua clothed? He's clothed in filthy clothes, right? Well, the filthy clothes there. Uh, is a metaphor for the iniquity or the sin in our lives. Now, I don't have to be a great Bible scholar to tell you why I think that, uh, because God answers the question for us at the end of verse 4. It says, see, I've taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. So he's made the equation for us. Our own sin, our own iniquity uh, is how jo- Joshua is clothed, and not just Joshua, but by extension the nation of Israel, and by extension uh, us as individuals. So I just want you to imagine for a second, it doesn't take a lot of imagining, um, standing before a holy God, uh, the one with no speck of impurity uh, in filthy robes. Now, I'm a little self-conscious up here because I don't have a jacket on. Every week I've been here, someone's preaching in a jacket. So, I'm a little self-conscious. But add to that if I'd come in my my yard work clothes. Okay, I've been out trimming grass with my weed eater and I'm covered in grass, I'm sweaty, I'm dirty. Uh, it's even it would be even more awkward, right? But that pales in comparison to standing before a holy God in 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 dirty, filthy clothes. Uh but notice what Jesus does and doesn't do he doesn't condemn joshua does he instead he reclothes joshua and that's important we'll come back to that but joshua makes him suitable for an audience with a holy god see as we're standing there i i heard one i read one commentator say this he wrote we are as attractive to god as a corpse at a dinner table now, it took me a while of rolling that around in my mind to really get it. But then it, my mind took me, the Holy Spirit took me to Colossians 2:13 through 14. I don't think I have a slide for that one. But it says, You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Now, I'm going to take a second here. It's important to note that Satan is doing what Satan does, right? From the very beginning, we know... Uh, the passage we're familiar with—the passage from Job, uh, where Satan stands and he's accusing Job before God—and we know from Revelation's um, chapter 12, verse 10, uh, that he's going to be doing it to the saints at the end of time. So Satan is doing what Satan does, and it shouldn't come to any uh, uh, surprise to us when we find him doing the same thing in our lives when we're feeling that that sense of condemnation, or we or we feel that sense of guilt or shame. Uh, he, Satan, is accusing us. He's using his his one weapon that he's been using from the beginning of time. So Old Testament heroes, New Testament saints, his mission is the same. Uh, before I want to move on, I want you to see one more thing from verse 2. I want you to see our defender in action. So we've already seen Jesus saves; he, He's rescued us from our sin. That, that's a, one aspect that's fully worthy of our worship. But then we read uh, back in verse 2. It says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? So thankfully, in my mind, we have a defender or an intercessor to intercede on our behalf. One who will reclothe us and not condemn us so that we can stand in front of our holy God. And one who chooses us just as he chose Jerusalem. Now, when you think of Jerusalem, there was nothing really noteworthy about Jerusalem. It was not the biggest city, it was not the most prosperous city. Uh, there was really no reason to be chosen other than god 's sovereign in god 's sovereignty. He chose Jerusalem, but it 's the fact that God chose Jerusalem that makes all the difference in the way uh, in his relationship with them. see he, he allowed we just heard that they had come out of captivity after uh, rejecting God for moving away from him uh, although he suffered allowed them to suffer from occasional chastisement he was always there to protect and restore her so even in this return from captivity the Israelites were likened to a stick snatched from a fire and just as Jerusalem had to fully rely on God's sovereign protection Joshua and by extension us we also stand before the judge unable to help ourselves so what does this mean for our lives you might be asking, well, somebody tell me, what are the wages of sin? Death, right? And what is the final destination of those who die in sin? Hell, a burning fire, right? So, again, an Old Testament allusion to a New Testament uh, uh, truth. As Israel has been rescued from the consequences of her apostasy and disobedience, so too have New Testament saints. We deserve the death sentence, and we know there will be two judgments, one for believers and unbelievers. For unbelievers, and I'm going to come back to you in a little bit, uh, it's not a pleasant thing. So uh, a life separated from God in, in hell. So in terms of eternity, we believers have quite literally been snatched from the fire. We have escaped only because of the work of Christ. I'd like to focus on that word chosen for a second a little bit longer um, I, I was reminded of Peter's words in in his book uh, That we are a royal priesthood and a chosen generation a Chosen people. What does it mean that we're we're chosen? i just give you a couple of thoughts uh, From again from the book of revelation. It's uh, verse chapter 2 verse 17. It will be familiar to you uh, Jesus is talking to the church there and he says that to them who overcome, I will give a white stone. Now, I thought about not using this because I didn't want to con- confuse stones with you. This stone is a, is a little stone. And again, John's readers would have understood this perfectly and immediately. See, for, in the Roman court system, um, when they would have a trial, and, and the, the trial was concluding that the judges would take either a white stone for not guilty or a black stone for guilty and put them into a vase. And at the end of the voting, they would empty empty it out, and the, whatever the majority was—white stone or black stone—determined the verdict. So, if it came out and you had a white stone, you were found not guilty. So, therefore, John's readers again, when, when he would have understood, they would have understood that when they were given a white stone, Jesus was in effect saying to overcomers, "I have reviewed the evidence, and I have judged you not guilty, not guilty." So Jesus' message to that church and to us today is that regardless of who you have been or what you've done before you came to Christ, what mattered now was the fact that you were clothed in robes of righteousness. Our filthy clothes have been removed, and we are clothed in righteousness. So in terms of Zechariah, again, no matter how filthy our garments have become, Jesus sees us in his robes. Viewing them in light of his blood, Jesus affirmed their full acquittal and complete release from their past sinful lives and memories. Well, the ancient Greeks, to, to just add on to this, they also had a, a system for white and black stones. And that was when they uh, when they went to vote on certain civic issues. So again, the, the uh, procedure was the same, white stone, black stone. White you voted for the procedure, uh, black stone you were voting against. And at the end of the voting, they again would empty them out and the majority would win. So a white stone represented a person voting in favor of some issue. A black stone representing a person who voted against. So again, so when Christ gave the white stone to the believer who overcame, he's not only announcing freedom from uh, freedom or forgiveness and acquittal from a past sinful life, he was also telling them, uh, I am for you. I am voting for you. How powerful a thing it is, in my opinion, that when we realize that a white stone means in, in Revelation 2.17, it declares that Christ has found us not guilty and that He is for us. It also records the fact that Christ will give us a white stone. And I need to reemphasize that because that's probably the most powerful part of this portion of the message is the fact that we're given the white stone. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder you know that you've been accepted. And the other thing, part of that is you didn't have to earn it. We did nothing in our own to earn the white stone. Just as Joshua was standing before God and being reclothed, Joshua was a passive participant there, wasn't he? He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. Christ took the initiative to reclothe and to do all the work. Joshua had no part in that, just as we have no part in ours other than to accept the work that he gave us. So this is the story of God. Jesus has chosen you, and he has already done everything necessary for you to be with him. I think it's vitally important for us to recognize that we are made clean by God's actions, not by our own works. Again, Joshua was a passive participant in the whole process. So then, coupled with Jesus's I will put fine garments on you, we see both a positive and a negative. Our iniquity is removed. Christ's righteousness is given. Jesus is the one who orders him re-outfitted. Jesus is the one who provides the robes and the removal of iniquity, as well as putting on the clean garments, is beyond Joshua's capabilities. And my suspicion is... If he would have been able to appear before God with spotless robes, he certainly would have done it. So if there's two main points you can take from this portion, uh, I hope there are these. I should have made a slide just to make them more memorable. But we cannot defend ourselves against Satan's accusations by pointing to our own merit, but only by letting the Lord defend us. Joshua, again, a passive participant, didn't pipe up and say, hey, wait a minute, Satan. He didn't defend himself. I'm not a bad guy. I've never committed adultery, I've never murdered anyone, I've never stolen anything, I'm regular in synagogue attendance, I pay my tithes, I even serve God as a priest. Joshua didn't say a word, because he could see and smell his filthy garments. He knew he was guilty as charged. And while Joshua couldn't defend himself, the Lord steps in and he defends Joshua on the basis of God's sovereign election, not on the basis of Joshua's merit. We'll notice that the Lord didn't rebuke Satan by pointing out Joshua's finer qualities. He didn't read a list of Joshua's good deeds over the years. Instead, the Lord rebuked Satan based on the one thing that the devil could not impugn Jesus' own righteousness, the Son of God, the pure and holy one. And one more thing while I'm at this point in the passage, we alluded to it a little earlier. Uh, one of the songs had a line, I wish I'd have written it down, but it, it was perfect. The NIV says that in this passage that Jesus has removed our sins. If I'd have put another version up there, the NRSV, it puts it this way. I have taken your guilt away from you. So maybe you're a believer this morning and you're under a cloud of condemnation. You feel guilty. You feel worthless. You feel a sense of shame. You're not good enough somehow. Somehow you're stained. Satan, the accuser. And you know this in your lives, I know it in my life, Satan will often seek to inflame those feelings of guilt and shame. He's been doing it since the beginning, he'll be doing it to the end, and that's the one thing he does, and he does it quite well. So when he does this, we need to remember, as children of God, what the Bible says. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And why no condemnation? because we're not wearing our filthy rags anymore. We're wearing the righteousness of Christ. We're wearing new clothes. We're wearing clean clothes. We are clothed in Jesus' spotless robes. We're washed in his blood. And when we're looked at by God, we're seen clean. So we need to let the Lord defend us based on his standing and not our own. I love that line. It says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. I am a child of God. One thing we say, I have to remind you, I I feel, though, as we talk about condemnation, there is a a conviction of the Holy Spirit when we sin, and we need to be aware of the gentle prodding of the Holy Spirit versus the just full-on blatant attack by Satan with guilt and shame. Um, We need to learn the difference between conviction and, and condemnation. Well, one more thing just in case you're not convinced that jesus is the connection is in this passage And I spent a good deal of time trying to convince you that jesus is the hero of the story He is the point of the entire bible He is the point of our entire salvation and he deserves worship because of our salvation and because he is our defender Those are great things, but if you're not convinced I'm going to share this with you just because I think god's kind of cool this way so in, in the passage, ten verses, Joshua's name is repeated six times. So what you, you ask. Again, God is very specific, the word he uses. We can learn from the black and white words on the page. We can learn from uh, the meanings of words. Uh, we can learn a lot from different things. So why is it important you ask? Zechariah's original audience would have, would have caught this immediately. Six times in the passage of Zechariah, it says uh, the name Joshua. And Joshua means Yahweh saves. So God is re-emphasizing the point through Joshua's name six times in, in ten short verses. It's the complete and total work of Jesus Christ written hundreds of years before the actual work of Jesus Christ. And I just find that amazing and it's inspiring. Well, let me ask you this. How many of you know what it means to be nose blind? You, you understand the term? So when I was young, I worked in a leather store. I managed a leather store. And about two months in, the, the leather smelled wonderful. I used to love going to work. It just smelled terrific. But after about two, three months, you lose that smell. You, you literally cannot smell it anymore. You just can't smell it. And I used to watch customers come in, and their face would light up, and they'd be enjoying the, the scent. Uh, and I was a little envious because I, I just couldn't smell it. I'd forgotten what it smelled like but then there 's the flip side of that. Um, my previous job I, I was gone thirty plus hours uh, on a trip, and I, there was no shower um, i 'd be working ninety degrees heat, eighty uh, percent humidity, fairly sweaty uh, it was it was pretty disgusting. So I think you get the picture of what i 'm trying to say there. But then the first thing that would happen when i 'd come home i 'd come up to my lovely wife to give her a kiss, and she 'd say the three words that every husband wants to hear. You really stink. <laughs> the problem is I couldn't smell it anymore, right? I had grown accustomed to my own my own stink. Um, and I think that's, uh, when we think about how we can become desensitized to how bad we smelled, I smelled, uh, obviously others had not. And we can, again, do that with any odor. We can do it with bad odors. We can do it with good odors, like leather. Um so with that imagery in mind, I want to give you some statistics. So George Barna, these are 2006, so it's probably worse now. George Barna in 2006, 45% of Americans claim to be born again. Only 9% take what Jesus says seriously about their lives. That's depressing. I think, and it's it's indicative of our, our culture. I think that in many ways the church, and I use that as a as the body of believers, not any particular church uh, building or institution, uh, the church body has minimized the problem of guilt by portraying God as very tolerant of sinners and by viewing ourselves as not such bad people after all. We see God primarily as our good buddy in the sky who might sigh about our sin but would never get angry or deal severely with his children. He loves us regardless of what we do and we never have to say I'm sorry or repent, which is not totally... Wrong. It's an incomplete picture of him though. Thanks to the insight of Christian psychology, we know that the high calling of Christians is to love ourselves and build our self-esteem, to live our best lives now. And as a result, I think we think, we think God chose us because of who we are, because of the great potential He saw of, saw in us. I think we have a problem. I think we've become noseblind to our own inadequacy before god our own standing before god we forget that we're clothed in filthy rags and need fixing well how bad is it you might ask well i'm glad you ask because that's the crux of my message today i've spent a lot of time building up jesus as the source of our salvation and what he's done for us but we really need to see the contrast here see i think our translators have done us a a grave disservice in a lot of instances in the scripture and this is, is one of them Um, And I think they've done it so as not to uh, offend our sensibilities. I think we've lost the full sense of the imagery that God wants us to see here, to grasp and understand, and to really see the contrast between Joshua's filthy robes and Jesus' robes of righteousness. We lose the profound sense of just how really despicable we are or were in God's sight without Jesus' intervention. See, the word filthy is much worse than just dirty. Now, I know dirty. A dust cloth is dirty, right? A used dish rag is dirty. The other day, my lawn mower belt broke. I was rolling around in the dirt and the heat. I was grass stained, mud stained, sweaty. I was dirty, but I wasn't filthy. There's a very big difference between dirty and filthy, and I think we all understand that. Now, suppose I had been working on my mower. I was grass covered. I was greasy from messing with the stuff, and I came up to my wife. She has a, a pure white dress on, and she wants me to zip up her zipper. Now, I know she will not let me touch that dress until I did something about my dirtiness, right? And the same thing is true with God, I believe. I was dirty, but again, there's a difference between dirty and filthy. People think, I believe, that they're in much better shape standing before a holy God than we really are. Now you have to understand I'm not trying to be crass here, but you need to get the image of filthiness. The word filthy literally means excrement covered so in years past we've done outreach into the DC streets talking to the homeless um, as you can imagine, personal hygiene is very hit or miss um, there are a variety of reasons the largest one being that there are no facilities uh, for the folks on the street well I think that physical contact when you're in those situations is very important, personal physical contact. It lets the homeless know that they're real people. It gives them a sense of validation that they're not just overlooked objects in the street. So I always try to uh, shake hands with everybody I come in meet uh, in contact with. Now some of those times you just have to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to protect you. Um, and there, I'll be honest, there are times where I would not shake hands. Just because it was quite obvious what I was getting into, so my point with that is, it's nice to know that Jesus has never ever failed to clothe us in His righteousness. He's never failed to come uh, and mix uh, physically among us. We sing "Emmanuel" at Christmas, God with us. We think. Of John, where it says that the word became flesh. And I I don't know, sometimes do we really think about what all he gave up to do that? What all he gave up, but not only that, what he came to live among. He came to live among people living in excrement-covered garments. The high priest of heaven left glory to come and dwell with us, to rub shoulders with us. People who smell bad, who look bad and you know what he still moves to change our garments and then if you cover that with couple that with Zechariah uh, Zechariah's filthy with the prophet Isaiah's wording and again I don't mean to be crass but it helps draw that distinction that we need to draw and realize just how filthy we are the word Isaiah used is a word for used menstrual, menstrual cloths so again you begin to understand just how great a thing Jesus's work on our behalf is Last week, Happy asked the question, what chair are you in? Which type of Christian will you be? This week, I'll ask you a simple question, related but a little different. In light of all that Jesus has done, what will your response to him be? So out in the North I was walking through the other day from the office to grab some coffee, uh, and I noticed the sign up on the right as you go out. I hadn't really paid attention to it before. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21, and it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I like that, but I like the way the CEV says it better. It says, Christ never sinned, but God treated him as a sinner so that Christ could make us acceptable to God. Jesus took the punishment we deserved, so that we could experience the glory that we didn't deserve. And when God cleanses a sinner, he not only takes away his sin, but he also imputes to him the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm going to finish this up pretty quickly. But for our purpose today, I'm going to divide people into two groups because I think Scripture is quite clear about the status of everyone. I'm going to say today I'm going to divide us into believers and a phrase I heard once, not yet believers. Believers. Because Scripture is quite clear, one day every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Hopefully, you've heard this message today as a not-yet-believer, uh, and you want to change that. You've sensed the Spirit's prodding, you've sent Him convicting, and you know God is chasing you. We've also talked about the punishment, the end destination for those who don't believe, who have not yet accepted Christ. So I'm telling you this morning, it's better to make that decision now, sooner rather than later. If you're feeling that, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Well, mourn what? The mourning that you feel about your own sense of sin, your own remorse for your own impurity and lack of standing before God. They mourn because of their own depravity, their own sinfulness. They mourn because of their own separation from God, caused by their own filthy righteousness their own filthy garments, and they mourn because they know there's nothing they can do about it on their own. Until you accept the work of Jesus Christ, you will be clothed in your filthy garments. So if you're here again, again, you're struggling, you you know that God's trying to get your attention, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't give you the steps, and then I ask you, if you're feeling any conviction, I'll be here. I know happy. There are many people. Ask the person beside you in the, in the seats. We'll be happy to pray with you. But Jesus has done the work for you. You simply have to acknowledge that you are a sinner and fall short of God's demand for perfection. Acknowledge that Jesus has paid the penalty for you, removing your own filthy rags and clothing you in his spotless robes. Acknowledge the debt you owe Jesus. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. The scripture says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, again, if you'd like to make things right, I'll be right here after the service. So, again, this message, Jesus saved, I know it's simple. But it is the foundation for us as believers. It's so basic, though, sometimes we can become nose blind. We begin to take for granted exactly what it is that Christ did for us, what it cost him. To come rescue us. And so it's good, I think, every now and then to revisit, revisit the story. Our small group that I was a part of for many years just recently rewatched The Passion of the Christ. That's a very difficult thing to watch what Christ did for us, the suffering that he underwent. But it was great to be reminded of just what he went through to make sure that we were clothed in his righteousness and not our own. Now, some in here may not want to hear that we're not worthy on our own merits. And I say, if the true condition of our state, of our own unworthiness, offends rather than humbles, we might be in danger right now. It's only when we grasp that full contrast, again, of Jesus' purity and our impurity, what he did for us, unworthy sinners, that we can truly love God, I believe, with all our hearts, all our minds, all our soul, and all our strength. So if you're a believer, I think our response should be similar to what Paul said in Romans 12:1.'s 1. It's one of my favorite verses. It's a great reminder. In light of the great mercy that he's shown us, it's our reasonable act of service to offer ourselves a living sacrifice. I like that verse. The NLT puts it a little bit different. It says, because of all he has done for you, and I think that all is the key to remember, all that he has done. So again, my my question is simple, and I'm going to close with this, believer. In light of the mercy that he has done for us, how will it affect your life? What will you do differently when you leave this place? Two weeks ago, Jared's friend Ben challenged us at the end of his message with the illustration of a match. A match is going to burn out, and its life is fairly short. But he asked a question. He said, we are going to burn out anyway, he said, but we may as well take as many others, we may as well take others with us. And that, to me, represents the true offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. I had a different ending, but I love that song, and I thank Mike and the gang for doing it for me Um, at the cross. I'm going to read you some of the lyrics of the uh, of the chorus. It says, "At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life." This this is what God's asking of all of us as believers. It goes on to say, "I'm in awe of you. I'm in awe of you, and I truly hope after today's message that that's the case. When you think of what He's done for you, that you stand in awe of Jesus Christ, where your love ran red and my sin washed white, I owe all to you." I owe all to you, and I just say, true words were never spoken. Amen? Amen. Go ahead and close with prayer, and then the group, if you guys can come back up. Lord God, we just give you thanks. Jesus, you are, and I hope we can all say this with true confidence, all in all. Lord, we know that on our own, we are unworthy, and there's not a thing we can do about it. So we give thanks for your sacrifice to make us clean, to give us right standing, so that we may enter eternity with you. Lord God, I thank you for your presence in this place. And I just ask as we finish up, Lord, that your spirit would move mightily within us, that you would fan the em- embers in our hearts, that you would truly make us a, a burning match that catches the world on us ar- around us on fire. Lord, we give you thanks and it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.